Hey, happy Father's Day, everyone. Let's, uh, let's give it up for all the dads in the house, dads-to-be. That's right. Being a dad, I'm a dad myself. One of the best things I've ever been blessed with. Um, I hope you guys got some cool gifts, um, like ugly ties or coffee mugs or golf stuff or whatever dads get. Um, I got something new this year. Um, a chance to do some public speaking. So um, I know you guys are jealous, but here I am. So um, I'm just kidding. I'm really (laughs) excited to be here um, and to be able to share um, and to just dive into this passage with you guys. So um, yeah, let's do it. Um, So as we continue our series in the book of Philippians, um, our series called The Cause, uh, What Are You Living For? Um, We're going to talk about hope tonight. And um, because what we place our hope in determines a lot of what we're actually living for. Um, And so in in going along with the whole Father's Day theme, um, we'll start with with parents, because I think most parents have um, some pretty strong kind of hopes and ideas and dreams of, of what they want their kids to be. And I know for me as a father, you know, I've, I have hopes for what, how my kids' lives turn out. And so um, when I'm up here on stage, I always take it as um, an excuse to kind of show a picture of my kids and show them off. So there they are. Um, Charlie is my little boy, and then Zoe um, is upside down. But um, yeah, so I have hopes for these guys. So um, like for Charlie, for example, I hope that when he's 40, he has a job and doesn't live in my basement. Or for Zoe, I hope that she never falls in love with a guy with a a face tattoo. You know, I think, you know, I have these like fairly reasonable hopes. Um, but what you, what you come to realize is with most of the hopes that we have um, is that we really don't have that much, um, much control over the situation because, you know, I can hope all I want and, and try to raise my kids in, in, in kind of a reflection of those hopes. But if Zoe, you know, falls in love with a guy named Razor who has a dragon, you know, tattooed across his face, then, you know, there's not a whole lot I can do about that, aside from, like, locking her in a closet. But I promise I won't do that. Um, so, you know, I think um, we all have these certain hopes for our future, whether, whether you're a parent or not. Um, we have hopes for our careers. We have a hope to kind of make a difference in the world. We have a hope to, to find love um, someday. We grow up with this illusion of control, that we can control our destiny and that, um, that our, our hopes and dreams kind of coming true are just kind of a matter of time. You know, obviously they're going to happen and um, this whole story is kind of being written about me and, um, you know, I can, eventually everything will, will happen the way I want it to and everything will be fine. But it doesn't take long for us to kind of grow up a little bit and step into reality that, that life is filled with... Uh, disappointments and um, heartbreak, that, um, that, that we, we see broken promises and harsh truths, and we see that life isn't really what we were told it was. It's a struggle, and rather than this perfectly written story, it feels more like a roulette wheel, where the hopes that we have are, are, are kind of left to chance, and more often than not, we leave the table broke and disappointed. And so it's in this context tonight that we turn to the Bible, and, and what we see in the book of Philippians and in the story of the Apostle Paul who wrote this letter is that, um, is that he, Paul, has certain hopes as well. One of the beautiful things about the Bible is that it was written by God through real people in real times and in real places. 
And so we come to Paul, who at this point has kind of had a lifetime of disappointment and struggle. He's had sudden career changes and abandoning of friends to physical afflictions that he's had to endure and and to where he is now, sitting in jail, beaten, kind of waiting to see if he's going to be executed or not. And yet, in the midst of all that, in this passage that we'll be looking at tonight, we see that Paul has hope. And beyond that, his hope is an expectation. And that, that hope and expectation is what allows him to boldly proclaim that to live is Christ and to die is gain. So as we examine that more closely, the question isn't whether or not we should hope, because we should, we need that. But the question is, what are we putting our hope in, and who are we trusting to see that hope come through? What we learn pretty quickly here is that in his prison cell, Paul's hope isn't in himself. You know, it's, it's not in his ability to, like, pick the lock and escape from jail, or in his, his like, winsome personality to persuade the guards to just kind of let him out. It's not in the Roman judicial system to, like, provide him a kind of fair and just trial so that justice is done, he can leave and kind of live the life that he wants to live. Rather, his hope and his expectations are in Jesus Christ. And that hope is not confined simply to his jail cell, but it extends to the people he's surrounded by. It extends to his life beyond the prison walls, and it extends even into death and eternity. That's a bold and radical hope. And I'd say that, that each of us in this room tonight yearn for something like that. On some level, we yearn for hope and peace now and in our future. In a life full of question marks and uncertainties, we yearn for assurance and certainty. So as we turn to the scripture, know that the hope that Paul has has been extended to you as well. And that as we take a look, we can see that how that hope can change your life for good now and for the future. So the first thing we're going to look at is we have a hope for life. And so we'll look at the first half of that passage again if you want to open your Bible with me. We'll start in verse 19 and go to verse 22. And it says this. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. So we're going to kind of begin and kind of frame our discussion around verse 21 because it's sort of the central thrust of this passage, and it's one of the more well-known verses in the Bible. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. And we're going to look at three truths that come out of this idea that living is Christ. And the first is this, that one, Jesus has given us life. The first thing we need to understand before we kind of go any further is that everything we say about Christ and Christianity kind of revolves and comes back to the, the belief that Jesus has given us life. In another letter written to Paul, um, in the book of Colossians, he puts it this way. Oh, I think we'll have it on the screen. Yeah, he, referring to Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's intense. So when we say Christ is life, we are saying that Jesus is God and that he was life before life even existed. 
that he then created all things, us, the universe around us, all things, both physical and spiritual, and also that it is Christ who is literally holding all things together, sovereignly holding all of life in his hands as we sit here tonight. And that's where we start, that life is Christ, but it goes even beyond that because what the Bible also tells us is that we as humans have cut ourselves off from that life. Humanity chose its own way, that we've been polluted by sin and that pollution has been passed down from generation to generation. So, that at the time that we're born, we say, no, life is not Christ, life is about me. It's about what I want, it's about me ruling my own life, seeking my own well-being, my own pleasure, my own satisfaction, my own way. That's sin, and the wages of that sin is not life, but it's death. The story doesn't end there because Christ is life. He intervened. In his goodness, he took our death from us on the cross and in his mercy and grace exchanged it for life. Jesus brought hope to the hopeless. He overcame death through his resurrection. So when Paul says to live is Christ, he means that the reason I have any life at all is because of Christ. And so it's all for him. So my wife Melissa and I we had our second kid in January. Her name's Zoe. Um, and at the time, we only had one car. It was a, it's a little Ford Focus. And as Brian mentioned earlier, I work up in Boulder. And so um, we kind of wanted a second car. And um, trying to, you know, so Melissa isn't trapped at home with two screaming babies. She can kind of escape sometimes. And so um, we had several kind of arguments and debates um, about what kind of car we should get. And eventually we decided... Um, that we had to make the leap to a minivan. Um, and um, making the leap to a minivan, it might be a little too positive. More like we gave up on ever trying to be cool again, so then we got a minivan. And so, um, so we did that. We, we got a minivan. And at the same time, we were kind of thinking through this. Um, my parents uh, decided that since they didn't have any kids in the house, they were going to get rid of their minivan. And so it all, all kind of worked out. The timing was perfect. They actually ended up giving their minivan to us for free, which, is, which was awesome. Um, and dads, for those of you out there that, you know, might have to get a minivan someday, if you can, try to get a free one, because then you have a built-in excuse. It's like, what? I mean, it was free. I have to drive it. I don't have any choice. What, am I going to turn down a free car? So, um, so we have a free minivan. And, uh, <laughs> but um, now, so we have this van. And now imagine if my parents, they live back in North Carolina, Let's say they came out here um, to visit, and one day they wanted to take a trip up to Estes Park or something, and, um, you know, they wanted to borrow the van. Um, they asked me, and, you know, what am I going to say to that? I'm like, you know, it's our van, and I don't really trust you with it, and uh, we don't really have plans to go somewhere, but we might, so no, you can't use the van that you gave us. I'm sorry. No, of course I'm not going to say that, right? Because... The only reason we had the van in the first place is because they kind of graciously gifted that to us. And so if they want to use it, if they want to drive it, then by all means, they could drive it. They could drive it back home to North Carolina. They could drive it off a cliff. I don't care. You know, it's like whatever they want to do with it. Because if I can honor them by allowing them to use it the way they want, then it's my pleasure to, to do that, right? Despite the fact that it's a minivan, I'm really thankful for it. And I'm thankful for the gift they've given us. And if, if there's like some small way that I can repay that generosity, then it's my joy to do that and allow them to use it. And I think the same thing kind of applies to our lives in Christ. We have to constantly remind ourselves that if we were nothing before Christ brought life to our dead souls, then, 
our lives are Christ. We live because he lives. It's our joy to give all of our lives to Christ because he's given all of his life for us. And with that life is the second thing, that Jesus has, has given us meaning. Life now has meaning. And the reason we, we can know that is because um, life, or Christ lived his life with meaning. When he descended from heaven, he knew what he had come to do. To live a perfect, sin-free life, share the good news of who he was, and what he was about to do with the people around him, sacrifice himself on a cross for the sake of our sins, and overcome the grave and rise again. That was his mission, and he lived all of his life in accordance with that. He lived with meaning and with purpose. And deep down, we all want that, don't we? Um, I mean, we look for meaning and significance in things all around us. We all love a good conspiracy theory. We, we look for meanings in the murals at DIA about like secret bunkers and new world orders and all this kind of stuff, right? It's like exciting. Um, we look, that's why like the, the double rainbow YouTube guy, like we, you see that, you know, he sees the rainbow. He's like, what does it all mean, man? It's like, there's all of that. We look for meaning in books, in art, in movies, in music, and when we can't find that meaning, it all seems kind of pointless. We want meaning in our own lives. We look for jobs that provide something more than a paycheck. We want to make a difference, feel like we contributed to the greater good in some way. We eventually tire of wild nights and empty hookups and want relationships centered around deep, meaningful love. All of us are wired to be a part of something greater than ourselves, and we seek to squeeze some sort of significance out of all of it. And that's one of the beautiful things about the gospel. Not only has Christ saved us from death, but he has saved us into something, into something meaningful, into a movement, into the kingdom of God, advancing to the ends of the earth, sharing with all those who would listen to the hope that we now have in our one true Savior. And if we look back at the passage, Paul writes in verse 21 and 22 that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then in verse 22 he says, if I am to live in, that f- in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. He knew that because his life was in Christ, his life had meaning. And his life would bear fruit no matter the circumstances. And he had already witnessed that. If we look back to the passage that Brian preached on last week, Philippians uh, chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, we see that lives were changed. Paul impacted the prison guards. He encouraged the other believers around him. The gospel advanced because Paul's hope was secured in Christ, and Christ brings meaning into even the most seemingly meaningless circumstances. The third thing is that life now has focus. Along with meaning, Christ brings a focus to our lives. So when we realize the hope that the gospel brings to our lives, we can't help but desire to see that hope received by the people around us. We are freed from distraction and allowed to view life through the lens of the gospel, perceiving what is beneficial and what is not. Having a singular focus can be a really powerful thing. I'm about to bring um, the preaching double whammy here. I'm going to bring an illustration involving Apple and sports. So, Brian, you're going to be really proud of me. Um, (laughs) I think um, singular focus is kind of how you would describe Steve Jobs, right? He had a, a singular focus to make technology that would improve people's lives for the better. And he was really great at it. The same thing goes for Michael Jordan. He had a singular focus to be the greatest basketball player there ever was. And he was. Those men each had an uncommon focus towards the things they were gifted at. 
And they did some wonderful things, but at what cost? Because by many accounts, those guys sacrificed themselves and the relationships around them at the altar of those focuses. They were in many ways jerks. They had broken marriages. They alienated their kids, burned bridges left and right with their coworkers and friends. I grew up outside of Chicago, and I loved Michael Jordan. Um, he was great. But if you ever get the chance, you need to listen to his Hall of Fame acceptance speech. He gave it a couple years ago. It's really telling um, kind of where the, the condition of his heart is. Because rather than celebrating his accomplishments and thanking the people that had helped him kind of along the way, he puts dudes on blast. He's trashing guys he played with um, in high school. He's throwing coaches and other teammates under the bus and basically tells his kids that they'll never live up to the standard that he had set for them. It's really crazy and, and really sad. Um, but it demonstrates very clearly what can happen when our focus turns to the wrong things, to temporary man-made things that ultimately don't fulfill us. Basketball records are going to be broken and iPhones will become obsolete, but Christ remains. Only Jesus is big enough to take on all of our focus and more. His gospel encompasses all of life and all of death. Nothing else on the planet can say that. We can place all of our lives on the foundation of the gospel and it holds up to the weight of it all. Sports, technology, careers, activism, relationships, whatever it is, they all crumble under the weight of a singular focus and they distort our views of reality. When we place our hope and our focus on anything other than God himself, the creator and sustainer of all of life, we come away unfulfilled, disappointed, and longing for something more. And yet, by the very nature of who God is and what the gospel is about, when we turn our gaze to him, it acts kind of like a prism does when we shine a light on it, reflecting and scattering that focus to the world around us, bringing light and color to dark and dreary places so that we begin to see relationships and technology, social justice, careers in a whole new way, painted by the beauty of the gospel. Instead of those things being the end in themselves and crumbling under that weight, they become a means to the end of bringing hope to hopeless people and seeing glory brought to God. And that's exactly what we see in Paul's story in verses 23 through 26. Yes, his desire is to be united with Christ through death because of the gospel. But because of the gospel, he has a greater desire to fight and to persevere and to ensure that the people he loves see and know Jesus through his life. So now we turn from life to death, the second part of that, that verse. Um, and we see that we have a hope for death as well. Because the hope that Jesus has for us extends everywhere. So have you guys ever noticed that um, some of the songs we sing here are kind of morbid, right? So we, we sing about death a lot, and we... We sing about fountains filled with blood. It's all kind of weird. Um, but we sing a lot about death and dying. And one of the reasons it's so weird is that so much of our lives and our culture is constructed to avoid death. We do everything we can to avoid it from uh, extreme safety measures that we take. Um, so I'm going to make fun of my mother-in-law a little bit. Um, she, uh, she likes to be safe, which is cool. Um, but she, uh, she, she taught Melissa and kind of raised Melissa to do this thing called the gun run. 
And I don't know if you guys know what the gun run is, but this is going to be really valuable for you guys. So the gun run is what you do when you're being chased by somebody with a gun who wants to shoot you. Um, Obviously, you're going to run, but if you run in a straight line, it's a pretty easy target, right? They're going to get you. So you do the gun run. And what the gun run is, is this kind of like series of jukes and jives, and you kind of go like this, and you zigzag, and you try to avoid the gun. And so that way, the guy with the gun, he's shooting, he's going to miss, and then he's out of bullets, and you're safe, right? So Melissa, Melissa growing up, she had to practice this. She would go out in the backyard. Um, if you can imagine this, you know, Melissa, no dinner until you do your gun run today, um, <laughs> which is hilarious. Um, I love you, Mom, um, if you're listening to this. Um, so, so we do that. We have, that's an extreme example, obviously. But we take safety measures. Um, we're kind of obsessed with health and wellness and a lot of good reasons for that. But for many, it's like we can extend our life and kind of put off death as long as possible. Um, if a coworker's family member dies, we kind of awkwardly avoid conversations with them. We don't want to bring it up or whatever. We go to to lengths if if like the family cat passes away you know we'd rather make up a story about how the kitty kind of went to the mountains to hang out at a kitty commune than like tell the truth to our kids about the fact that they died um not that any of that stuff is like wrong it's just kind of interesting right so like death is the one thing that we we share that we as the entire kind of human race are going to experience and and it's unavoidable. Um, and so um, what we see then is that it's, sorry, <laughs> so, the gun run is still throwing me off. Um, <laughs> so, and this, de- you know, this idea of death, it's so terrifying. The reason it's terrifying is because it's uncharted territory, right? It's like um, none of us have kind of gone there and come back and kind of know what, what it's about. Um, and so we do our best not to think about it or talk about it. Um, and yet these crazy Christians, they sing about it all the time. And the reason for that is because of the hope that Jesus provides. It's, not, it's hope not just for life, but for death as well. He's done what we could never do on our own. He lived the perfect life and he conquered death. Paul himself in the book of Acts, it says he looked that hope right in the face. He saw Jesus alive and well after he was crucified. And through that encounter, Paul was changed himself. And it's evident in how he writes here in Philippians. And we'll take a look at that, starting again in verse 21. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you have made ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. And so we're going to take a look at three things that Christ provides for us in death as well. The first is that death means Christ. And he, he confidently proclaims that to be with Christ is gain because it's far better than anything this world has to offer. Jesus is better. Whether you're sitting in a jail cell or not, Jesus is better. Better than the best this world has to offer. Better than we could ever imagine. We get glimpses of his glory and beauty every now and then. But they're kind of 
just mere echoes of what awaits us if we trust in what Jesus has done on our behalf. I feel like this quote from the book, um, The Weight of Glory by C.S. Lewis is a a great example. I'm going to read that. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past are good images of what we really desire. But if they're mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. I think you could preach a whole sermon on that passage alone, but one thing I think it speaks to is that we're so often wooed by the things the Creator has made rather than the Creator Himself. I don't know if you've ever felt that before, but I used to work at uh, the Apple Store down in Littleton, and I'd take the light rail down almost every morning, and... um, Along the way, there's this kind of unblocked, kind of beautiful view of the front range um, of the mountains. And it was great. And as I kind of headed towards my, my doom and my destiny at work and kind of facing hordes of angry uh, customers with broken iPhones, you know, I would, I would yearn to be free from that drudgery of work and to be free to go explore and climb those mountains, kind of pursue that beauty of that, like, adventure I wanted that, and, it, and I've summoned it at a 14er before, and, and yeah, it's pretty cool, but you, know, you get to the top, and what do you see? Hundreds of other peaks that look way more beautiful from far away than they actually do up close. And I don't know if I'm crazy, but I feel like you just want more, more than what that, um, the summit of that 14er has to offer. The beauty that you are after, it's kind of like, um, like a fox or a cat, and as you get closer, it, it kind of just kind of bounds away, and you can never really catch it. And I could try to climb every one of those other mountains and never really be satisfied. On some level, we all crave that beauty, and it's an itch that can never fully be scratched. There's something beyond this world, and I know that even the most skeptical of you guys out there can feel that. We were designed for something more. Paul felt that. He knew the work that Christ had done in and through him, but he wanted more. Creation was fine, but what he really wanted was the creator. He wanted to see Jesus, to look him in the face, to touch him, and to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's why death didn't phase him. He worshipped a Savior who had already defeated death. For Paul and for the people that put their hope in Christ, Death means Christ, and that is something to look forward to and not run away from. At the same time, death means freedom. Imagine what power that could have in your own life. How would your life be different if suddenly death had lost its power, if death had lost its sting? Not only its sting, but was actually better than anything we've known to this point. Imagine the freedom we'd experience to live life unfettered, to absolutely pour ourselves out and leave everything on the table, knowing that the best is yet to come. For the believer in Christ, death means freedom. Freedom from fear, freedom from selfishness, because think about it, if the victory has been won and true, beautiful, full life will be revealed to us in eternity, then we can use the time we have in this life, not for ourselves, but for others. Instead of spending the 80 or 90 years we've got on earth 
accumulating and storing and hoarding up pleasure, resources, money for ourselves, we have an opportunity to let go, to release it and share it with the people around us. And, and beyond that, since our hope is assured, we have the freedom to use our time spreading that hope to others around us, allowing them to get a taste of the goodness and grace of Jesus that we've already experienced. And that's what it's about. It's the model that Jesus laid out for us in his life. And that's the model that Paul follows here as well. As we see in verse 25, he knows that death is better, but he decides that he will stay, not for his sake, but for the multitudes of people that need to know the truth about the gospel. He says here to the Philippians that it's for your progress, it's for your joy that I, that I remain. And finally, we have hope for death because for those in Christ, death means hope. Just as we do pretty well at avoiding the topic of death, it's, it's also fairly easy for us to um, insulate ourselves from how messed up and painful this world can be. I'm not saying this is everyone, but for the most part, um, we all live in a great city, in an affluent country. Most of us are able to provide for ourselves a decent living. We can drive around the rough parts of our neighborhoods Uh, We can avoid the nightly news because it's depressing talking about rapes and murders and wars and we don't want to hear that stuff. It's super easy to read a tweet about another school shooting and just kind of scroll down to the next thing. But every now and then, we're confronted with the brokenness of our world. Like a punch to the face. Maybe Maybe it's a family tragedy or a sickness. Maybe it's injustice done to you or someone you know. Maybe it's financial struggles, marital struggles. Maybe it's struggles with deep, dark sin in your life. Whatever it is, we're eventually reminded that this world just isn't right. That sin and darkness reign. People are jacked up. We're selfish. We're depraved. And things need fixing. One of my best friends, um, his name is Clayton. He lives back in North Carolina. Um, He recently experienced this. Him and his wife, Kristen, have a daughter named Kara. She's Um, I think just one month younger than our son, Charlie. And um, several months ago, they noticed that Kara had this kind of constant twitch in her eye and kind of knew that something was going going on. Um, They took their daughter in to see the doctor. And the doctors really didn't know what was going on. They did IVs and scans and tests and treatments and whatever. And and still, they weren't really um, any closer to figuring out what was going on. Um... In the meantime, Kara's strength kept deteriorating, her health was deteriorating, and she eventually kind of lost the use of her arm. She couldn't even really feed herself anymore. Um, And uh, in the midst of this kind of ordeal and kind of seeing his daughter kind of slowly fade, Clayton told me that this was really the first time that this concept that death could be gained really meant something to him. Because um, staring at the prospect of his baby girls can continually deteriorating health and knowing that if, if nothing kind of intervened and nothing happened, eventually she'd need a respirator and um, eventually would stop breathing uh, altogether. Clayton and Kristen really were powerless. They could do nothing but cling to the hope found in Christ. In a matter of months, the reality of how broken this world is set in for them. And it hit them like a, a punch to the stomach. 
Thankfully, genetic, through genetic testing and stuff, they figured out she has this disorder with like 77 known cases or something crazy like that. And they've, they've figured out what they think is a treatment and they're hoping that through this treatment she can kind of regain her strength and, and get back to where she was before. But there's no guarantee of that. But no matter what happens, it's going to be a constant reminder for them of the struggle that life is, that the true healing and true rest only comes when this life is over. In the midst of that hardship, in the midst of hardships in our own life, you know, we work and we long for hope and healing now, but also realize that whatever we get is only going to be temporary. True hope isn't found in this world. Our hope is Christ. And one day we can be united with him and freed from the mess um, from the mess and struggle of life. As crazy as it sounds, our hope is found in death and in the promise of Christ returning and making every old and broken and sick thing new again. We get a glimpse of what that will look like someday in the book of Revelation. And I just want to read this because I think some of the most beautiful words ever put on paper. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. So we cling to that hope in the future, knowing that we can give life everything we've got, that the hardships and heartbreaks will not defeat us, and that when we come to our last day, we can stumble into the arms of of God and everything will be okay. That's the hope we have for the future. But it's what sustains us and empowers us right now. Knowing that life is a struggle, but we don't have to hold anything back because it'll all be worth it in the end. So to wrap up, as for the Christian, this is what it's all about. To live as Christ, to die as gain. All over our city, people are placing their hope in things that will fade away. We as a church have an opportunity to share the ultimate hope with the city around us and bring that hope to the hopeless. Also, I'm not naive enough to think that everybody in here is like completely on board with what I just said. I realize a lot of what I sound, said sounds a little crazy, you know, talking about resurrection from the dead and the afterlife and this idea that a man who lived 2,000 years ago is someday going to come back from heaven and he's holding life in his hands. He's going to make all things new and perfect again. It's okay if that's a little out there for you, but you have to at least admit that if it were all true, it's pretty incredible. This idea that we could know God personally, that he loves us, gave up everything for us, and that he gives us hope for today and hope for forever is amazing. So I challenge you not not to necessarily get caught up in everything that I talked about just now, but know that all of it, all of it is about Jesus. And I would challenge you to get to know Jesus. Read the Bible about him. Pray to him. 
Ask him to reveal himself to you. Seriously, you have nothing to lose. You have to at least investigate and see if, if what he said about himself and, and what the Bible says about him could be true. You're surrounded by people in this church that would love to help introduce you to Jesus. It's why we are here and it's why we exist. I'm sure you have really valid reasons for being skeptical. But try to set those aside and just investigate and see, examine who is Jesus and what does he mean for my life. So as we close, I'm going to pray. We'll take communion. We're going to worship. We're going to see a couple baptisms. As we do that, listen to the words that we sing. Listen to the stories of the people getting baptized. Whether you follow Jesus or not, reflect on them and ask yourself, who or what am I putting my hope in right now? What am I living for? Who am I entrusting to see my hope carried out? We can't lift this stuff on our own, but Jesus can and he wants to. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's pray. God, you are good and gracious. We thank you for that. For the unmerited mercy that you pour on us, Lord. This life is hard. Sin is strong. And we battle and we fight and we struggle. God, but you have stepped in. You give us strength. You give us hope. You give us power through your spirit to overcome this life and this world. God, I pray that you would make yourself known to us. Help us to learn to rely on you to live with that hope held firmly in our hands, to go forward and to share it with the people that need to hear it. God, we thank you for who you are and what you've done. Thank you for the power to overcome sin and death. Jesus, teach us to put our hope and our faith in you and you alone. Use us to advance your kingdom. Use us for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen.